Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Again, this week we have a very interesting program and it's very timely. We have Tom Jensen on, who's the Director of Public Policy Polling, which is a company that is based in Raleigh, North Carolina, but does polling all across the country and is well recognized as one of the the, uh, very uh, good pollsters as far as coming up with the the right uh, data that uh, gives people uh, uh, some insight into what's going on. And of course, right now we've got a lot of elections going on. So let's, uh, first of all, welcome uh, Tom to the program. Tom, nice to have you back. It's good to be with you, Mr. Curtis. Uh, well, you you know, yeah, I know I'm older than you are, but you don't have to call me Mr. Curtis. You can call me, uh, hey, you, if you want to, that'd be just fine. You, you, uh, have, so, you have earned a very high level of respect. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, let's talk about the uh, primary election here in North Carolina. Uh, we have, of course, 14 congressional seats up now that we have gained a seat. And uh, we have, for the most part, uh, the, the primary probably, in most cases, will be uh, the primary winners will probably be the likely winners in the fall in most cases. Uh, we will ask you which ones might be competitive in the fall. But first of all, let's just look at the, t- the primaries here in the, in the spring election, both parties. So why don't you sort of go down the districts and tell us, I'm sure you've done some polling, uh, how it looks here in North Carolina. Sure. Well, obviously, the biggest amount of attention has gone to the primary race for U.S. Senate. On the Democratic side, there's really not very much uh, suspense about that. Sherry Beasley should win the nomination by a very significant margin. Uh, It actually is increasingly looking like the Republican primary for Senate might not be that competitive either. Uh, You have three significant candidates in that race, former Governor Pat McCrory, Congressman Ted Budd from the triad, and Uh, uh, former Congressman Mark Walker, also from the triad. And uh, Pat McCrory, as a former governor, started out that primary contest with a very significant advantage, I think simply because he had much higher name recognition than the other folks running. Uh, But the most important thing that happened in that race was when Donald Trump uh, endorsed Ted Budd last summer to be the uh, candidate to replace Richard Burr in the Senate. And after that, McCrory was still ahead in the polls, but it got a lot closer. And basically, as Ted Budd has become more and more well-known, and as Donald Trump has gone more and more to bat for Ted Budd, it's actually turned into a little bit of a runaway. Uh, There have been a handful of polls in the last few weeks that have had Ted Budd leading Pat McCrory by over 20 points uh, in the primary election for U.S. Senate. So, uh, it seems un- unless something really wild happens in the last two days of the race, uh, like the general election for U.S. Senate will be a race between Ted Budd on the Republican side and Sherry Beasley on the Democratic side. It's really going to be a pretty embarrassing performance for Pat McCrory as a, a former governor to not only lose the primary, but lose it by a significant amount. Uh, and I think in addition to losing the primary, he's kind of lost his dignity, too. He was a really well-respected figure in the state when he was sort of a center interest mayor of Charlotte, uh, got a lot of Democratic support. uh, And the first two times he ran for governor, he got a lot of crossover Democratic support. Uh, But now he's sort of moved far to the right, but those far right voters have still rejected him. And now he's kind of in a position where nobody respects him. So I would expect that this will be the end of his political career. 
Well, of course, that's basically the problem that any Republican faces. He's got to get out of the Republican primary, which is basically uh, now with all the large number of uh, registered unaffiliates, uh, very solidly uh, right wing conservative. So uh, I guess what you do is you run as hard as you can to the right, and then you try to get back to the center when the uh, if you get out of the primary. Can we anticipate that Bud will try to go back to the center if he uh, is the, indeed the uh, Republican nominee? Will he try to sort of slide back in there? To uh, I, I guess the question I'm really asking is, what are the uh, registered unaffiliates doing in this in this primary? Well, unaffiliated, first of all, for the most part, just don't vote that much in primary elections. But unaffiliated voters, more generally, tend to vote for whichever party is out of power. So I expect that this fall you'll see Ted Budd do pretty well with unaffiliated voters, even if he doesn't do much to try to move back to the center, because I think the overwhelming thing that unaffiliated voters will be trying to vote for is change. People are not happy with how things are going in Washington. They don't like Joe Biden. They don't like the Democrats in Congress. Uh, Because of that, uh, to some extent, it doesn't even matter what the Republicans put up, because people, I think, are just in a mindset where they want to vote Republican. I do think that Ted Budd is a slightly weaker candidate for the general election uh, than Pat McCrory would have been for the Republicans, because I still think Pat McCrory had a small vestige of crossover support across party lines, especially in the Charlotte metro area where people sort of remember him as that moderate mayor. But the simple reality about the political climate that we're in right now is the country is about eight points to the right of where it was in the fall of 2020. And of course, Republicans won the Senate race in the fall of 2020, even when the political climate was a lot better for Democrats than it is now. So it's sort of an oversimplification. But if you take that one point win that the Republicans had in the Senate race in 2020 and move that eight points to the right, you would expect Ted Budd to start out the general election against Sherry Beasley as about an eight point favorite. And certainly Democrats will do everything that they can to tar Ted Budd as an extremist and to um, play up his ties to Trump as much as they can. But of course, then you also still have to remember that Trump won North Carolina. Uh, So Trump may not be popular, but he won the state anyway. Uh, So we've been in a run here in North Carolina where all of our major races have been really competitive, 2020, 2016, 2014, 2012. The last time we really had a runaway race for U.S. Senator Governor was uh, Richard Burr's first re-election in 2010. And Democrats will certainly do anything that they can to stop that. Uh, But I think that uh, it's going to start out in a position where Republicans have a pretty substantial advantage. We've talked so much over the last few election cycles about North Carolina being toss-up, toss-up, toss-up. This is a case where because of that national political climate, Republicans definitely start out with the advantage. Nationwide, of course, I guess uh, one third of the U.S. Senate positions are open. uh, And right now the Democrats have a very slight uh, majority, uh, counting the speaker, um, and have not been able to really push the Democratic agenda because usually there's one or more Democrats who on one or more issues will say, well, wait a minute, I can't go along with the Democratic position on this. So what are you, uh, how, are you polling in other states and or what are you seeing as far as what your forecast is for how the United States Senate will line up next year when uh, the uh, newly elected uh, senators are installed? 
Yeah, we talked about, you know, how the country's moved about eight points to the right of 2020. There are three Democratic senators who are up for reelection next year, or excuse me, this fall in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia that are all states that Joe Biden won by less than two points. So just based on that eight point movement in the political climate, you would expect all three of those states to vote Republican for the Senate this year. Now, Pennsylvania is having its primary for the Senate uh, on Tuesday as well. And I I think what happens there is gonna be really telling about what might happen for the country as a whole this fall. It looks like Pennsylvania Republicans are gonna end up nominating somebody who is very, very extreme uh, for the US Senate. They're either gonna nominate Dr. Oz, who's extremely unpopular with the general electorate, but has the Trump endorsement, or they're gonna uh, uh, nominate this woman named Kathy Barnett, who basically has no qualifications to be a US Senator whatsoever. So Pennsylvania is gonna be an amazing test case on do candidates matter at all? Democrats are gonna nominate the strongest candidate they possibly could have nominated. Uh, I think in Pennsylvania, Republicans are going to nominate the weakest candidate they possibly could have nominated in Pennsylvania. Uh, And if you made me say right now, okay, Democrats weakest candidate, excuse me, Democrats strongest candidate versus Republicans weakest candidate, who do you think is going to win in a 50-50 state like Pennsylvania? If I had to put money on it, I'd say the Republicans weakest candidate beats the Democrats' strongest candidate because the political climate is so bad for Democrats right now. So if you just base it on the political climate, Republicans get to at least 53 to 47 majority in the Senate between Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. And then they have a decent chance of winning in places like New Hampshire and even Colorado that were more Democratic and possibly getting Republicans to 55 seats. Democrats have chances for offense, especially in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and to a lesser extent in North Carolina and Florida. But the big question is just going to be, Do Republicans nominate bad enough candidates in these key Senate races that Democrats can win when voters are definitely inclined to vote Republican? There is a precedent for this. In 2010, Democrats won some Senate races they really shouldn't have won because Republicans nominated such extreme candidates. My feeling is that over the last 12 years, the country has gotten so much more polarized that it may not matter if Republicans nominate really bad candidates anymore. They're really bad, really extreme candidates might just win anyway uh, because of the overall climate. But that's the big question for how big of a majority Republicans are gonna end up with is does it matter if they nominate these extreme candidates or not? My guess is no, but we'll see if Democrats can work that effectively. So basically your uh, feeling is, and of course, uh, I, I fear that very often we don't realize what a difference it makes and who is in charge of the Senate, uh, because uh, all, you know all the committee chairmanships change uh, to the party that is in control. Uh, so you're saying that uh, next year, 2023, we should have a United States Senate that will be predominantly Republican, either 53-47 or maybe as much as 55-45. Is that what you're basically saying? Yeah, unless there's a dramatic change in the political climate here over the next six months, that's definitely what we're headed for. And this is pretty consistent with what happens historically. It's just a reality that President Biden's not very popular, generally has about a 40 to 42 percent approval rating, generally about 52, 53 percent of voters disapprove of him nationally. And in the key states for Senate races this year, his numbers are actually a little weaker than that. Um, 
And when people don't like the president in that president's midterm election, they vote for the other party. Uh, so that's the dynamic that Democratic candidates across the country are going to have to be dealing with this year. We've got about a minute to answer this question. Are there any issues that could dramatically change between now and November that would change that forecast? Well, I think the thing that's killing Democrats the most right now is inflation. So if gas prices get control under control, if other things that have really increased in costs get under control, there actually are things that Democrats can point to that have gone well in Biden's first year and a half in office. Jobs numbers are very strong. Um, some economic indicators are very strong when you look at Biden's first term. And it's just going to be a question of whether Democrats can effectively sell those things because right now they can't effectively sell those things because voters are more concerned about inflation, more concerned about gas prices. If inflation and gas prices don't get turned around, I don't think there's a way for Democrats to get things turned around between now and November. But if people feel better about the economy in six months, Democrats might have more of a fighting chance than it looks like they do now. Tom Jensen is our guest. He is the director of public policy polling, and he is speaking from uh, uh, from a position of doing polling all across the country on these issues. And we're going to turn to the, the uh, House of Representatives next and uh, get his views on how North Carolina will vote and how the uh, country will vote. We'll do that right after these messages. Olivia from Washington. <clears throat> Laid off and trying to keep our little kids from realizing that mommy and daddy haven't eaten in a while. Roger from California. I'm grateful we could afford our son's surgery. I'm nervous that now we can't really afford food. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Donna from Louisiana. The storm just hit and we went from donating to the food bank to needing it. Keisha from South Carolina. I've been skipping meals so my two kids can eat, but filling up on water doesn't really work. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. 
Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We are delighted to have Tom Jensen with us, especially because we have a primary election coming up. A reminder that a number of the stations that carry this program across the state carry the 30-minute version. And if you are listening to one of those stations, there are two segments that you're not hearing that you can hear by going to carolinanewsmakers.com. And those two segments are segregated. Or you can share the entire broadcast with a friend or listen to it again if you miss part of it. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Tom Jensen is our guest, as we said. And Tom, I, you know, one of the favorite subjects I like to bring up because I think it's so intriguing is uh, how the list of unaffiliated voters, voters who are not registering as either Democrats or Republicans, uh, are, are, are tallying up here in North Carolina. And I, I sense it's happening sort of across the country. Of course, all of these people have uh, views and opinions. And, and, you know, I think it's pretty clear that most of them lean one way or the other. What kind of research are you doing on unaffiliated voters and why are people uh, registering unaffiliated in such large numbers? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that uh, we have major listeners look like they knew something ahead of time because we've been talking for the last decade about how someday there's going to be more unaffiliated in North Carolina than Democrats or Republicans. And that has happened now in the last few months where unaffiliated are now the biggest voting group in the state, which is something that I bet we've talked about a dozen times over the, yeah. the years. So I'm, I'm glad we got that right. Um, but I think the answer to why there are so many more unaffiliated is simply that People think that both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are terrible, and they don't want to associate themselves with it one way or the other. And you're absolutely right that most voters do, even if they're unaffiliated, pretty strongly vote Democratic or pretty strongly vote Republican. But what you have is a lot of conservative voters, maybe, who think that the Republican Party is lame, so they register unaffiliated. They still vote Republican, but they don't want to call themselves Republicans. And the same thing for the Democrats. And I think this was very well exemplified by Bernie Sanders. He's obviously uh, very liberal and his supporters are very liberal, but they don't really like the institutional Democratic Party. Uh, so even though they will vote for Democrats, they don't want to identify themselves as Democrats. One data point I saw in the last two months that was particularly fascinating is that more than 75 percent of newly registered students at UNC Chapel Hill, which is of course such a bastion of liberalism, are registering unaffiliated. And it's like 23% Democrats and 2% Republicans, but three and four students in this liberal area are registering unaffiliated. And I think that just shows the extent to which, especially among younger voters, there's just really no appeal in the institutional political parties at all uh, and that they don't want to have anything to do with them. But to your broader point, most unaffiliated always vote Republican. Most unaffiliated always vote Democratic. One of those two things or the other. And then the ones who are in the middle are what I call the cranky voters. They're just always mad at whoever's in charge. So they just move back and forth between voting for whoever is out of power. So that dynamic was very good for Democrats in North Carolina in 2018, and that dynamic will be very good for Republicans in North Carolina in 2022. One of the things that's been a, sort of a mystery to me, you mentioned the fact that 
unaffiliated, uh, as in North Carolina, unaffiliated can choose which primary to vote for uh, year by year uh, in the uh, primary elections. But you also mentioned that most uh, or a larger number of unaffiliated voters don't sh uh, show up for the primary election. Wonder why that is. And the follow-up question to that is, why do the candidates in their ads not appeal to the unaffiliated voters right straight out and just say, look, if you're unaffiliated, uh, you don't want to vote for so-and-so, so vote my way this time around. Yeah, so it's not a 100% rule, but for the most part, unaffiliated voters are less engaged than people who do register as Democrats or Republicans. For the most part, uh, if you register as a Democrat or a Republican, that's an indication that you have pretty strong political views that make you go into one category or the other. And I think if you don't have strong views one way or the other, you're more likely to end up in that unaffiliated column and you're less likely to be somebody who's going to vote in a primary election. But this is actually a great segue into what may be the most interesting primary election in North Carolina on Tuesday, which is Madison Cawthorn's race in the 11th district, because one dynamic that's going on there is a lot of unaffiliated are voting in the Republican primary. Most of the time you'll see maybe half of people pick the Democratic ballot, half of people pick the Republican ballot. In that race, almost everybody is picking the Republican ballot. And it's going to be fascinating to see if that's something that ends up putting Madison Cawthorn out of office, if all these unaffiliated voters who are showing up to vote against him end up being the thing that put one of his opponents over the top. It's been a very interesting situation for Madison Cawthorn over the last couple months. In March, he was at like 50% something in the polls, which is still pretty weak for an incumbent. But since you only need to get 30% of the vote to be renominated, even though 50 something percent is weak, you're still going to get renominated. And as his scandals have just cascaded and cascaded and cascaded in recent weeks, now polling is showing him only in the 30s in the primaries. He's still winning, and he'd still win if the election was today, uh, but he's getting closer and closer to dropping below 30%, where either A, he could end up in a runoff, or B, one of his other opponents could actually pass him for percentage of the vote. If Cawthorn gets bailed out and wins another term, it's going to be two things that did it for him. One, that he has so many different opponents, and support is just splitting too much across all those different opponents rather than going to one person who can overtake Cawthorn. The other thing is going to be having that 40% threshold that it used to be now down to a 30% threshold. Because if he wins with 32% of the vote, if he had have to have if he had have to have a runoff with getting 32% in round one, he loses a runoff 60-40 at the best. If you support Madison Cawthorn, you already support Madison Cawthorn. There's not going to be a lot of people who don't support Madison Cawthorn right now, but then decide in the runoff, oh, I'll vote for him over the other alternative. It's clear that about two-thirds of the voters in his district don't like Madison Cawthorn, but he might get bailed out by the field being so large. And it's going to be fascinating to see if those unaffiliated voters voting against him because he's an extremist are enough to push him below 30 or push him into second place. If he survives the Republican primary, what are his chances in the general election? I think he'll be very strong for the general election. I think he will have, I mean, this, this, is, this is very emblematic of where we are in American politics these days. I think if he survives the primary, he's going to go into the general election with a 25% favorability rating with the overall electorate in the district. 
and he's going to have a 60% unfavorability rating with the overall electorate in the district. So he's going to have a minus 35 favorability rating, and I think he's going to win anyway, because I think at the end of the day, almost all of those Republicans who don't like him will end up deciding that they would rather vote for him than a Democrat. And that is basically the key to what happened with Trump uh, outperforming his poll numbers in both 2016 and 2020. So there's a lot of Republicans who found Trump really distasteful. They might not have liked him, but at the end of the day, they convinced himself that he was better than a Democrat. And I think the same thing will happen for Cawthorn. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think in this political climate, a district that's pretty strongly Republican, it's just very unlikely that the general election is going to be competitive, even if Cawthorn himself is incredibly unpopular. Just going back to what we talked about earlier, where partisanship and tribalism and that sort of thing matter much more than individual candidates and their popularity. That's interesting. That someone who has such a high degree of controversy, uh, even in his own party, can get reelected. Yeah, it just speaks to it. Just speaks to the fact that what motivates voters now more than anything else, especially the strong Democratic partisans and the strong Republican partisans, is they feel stronger about hating the other side uh, than they do about anything else. So I just think there's going to be a lot of Republicans who have to decide: Well, who do I hate more? Do I hate Madison Cawthorn more, or do I hate Democrats more? And I think, by and large, those people are going to end up deciding that they hate Democrats more than they hate Madison Cawthorn. Interesting. Well, uh, okay, so North Carolina is recognized right now as a, a purple state. And of course, if you look at the presidential elections of the past uh, four elections, especially, it shows that to be true. Is North Carolina growing uh, either more Republican or more more independent or more uh, Democrat as it grows and continues to uh, be a factor uh, as far as national politics is concerned. Are we going to remain right down the middle and be basically a purple state, or we're we going to lean one way or the other? I think North Carolina is definitely, in an average election cycle moving forward, going to be a 50-50 sort of state. If the country itself is pretty evenly divided in a given election year, I think North Carolina will be pretty evenly divided in election year as well. Uh, I'm sure that Republicans are going to have a very strong year in the state this year. And I'm sure after that, there's probably going to be some messaging and people claiming that North Carolina is not purple anymore and it's a red state and that sort of thing. But I think basically North Carolina is a red state and a red year. Uh, and that will certainly be the case. Uh, and I think that the ceiling is higher for Republicans in North Carolina. I think Republicans can win a Senate race in North Carolina by eight points in a year like this. Whereas I don't think Democrats can win a Senate race by eight points in North Carolina, probably even if the political climate was this good for Democrats nationally. But if you ask me to just very easily sum up North Carolina in one number in terms of its partisan orientation, I think we are a state where Republicans have a two point advantage. Um, so in your average year, Republicans are going to win by about two. In a Republican year like this, they'll win by a lot more. In a Democratic year, Democrats have a good fighting chance to pull out some close victories. And I would be surprised if that sort of overall dynamic changes very much in the near future. You've got about a minute to uh, uh, follow up on what you said earlier about North Carolina is not the only state that in their redistricting uh, actually ends up uh, more partisan than ever before. I'm sorry, I just got COVID brain. Can you, I just like totally <laughs> uh, lost. 
Well, you know, I, we've said that about you several times, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to pick on you. And actually, you don't have time now to answer the question in the first place. So, uh, but basically, I was saying, uh, do you think that the uh, uh, the the GOP or the Democrats uh, will change their philosophy much in the next two years? No, I think for the most part, both parties are very self-assured. The one thing I could see changing is that Democrats may try to nominate more moderate candidates in their primaries moving forward if they have a really bad year, uh, because I think that the left will get blamed. Uh, but I think Republicans will be full speed ahead. I'm sorry I caught you in your unawares. But uh, anyway, we certainly appreciate your taking time to be with us. Tom Jensen, Director of Public Policy Polling. Again, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Jason Kong has produced our program, and he promises me that he'll have another interesting guest next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So the next week, same time, same station. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.